So we're going to go ahead and get started. Dr. Mike Winters is the speaker today. He's the uh, director of the emergency department here at university. He trained in both internal medicine and emergency medicine and was one of my senior residents my very first month in the medical ICU. And so much of my learning has stemmed from his instruction. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate his time for uh, coming here today to talk to us on the topic of um, acute upper GI bleed. So Thanks, welcome, Mike. Mike. Thanks for, for coming during lunch. I appreciate Mike's invitation. It's always great to come and do uh, spend some time with you. I will say that I won't go into any stories from that first month of Mike's internship or residency, but there are several that I think I will take with me throughout my career um, of a young Dr. McCurdy. But what I want to do, we can, we'll probably do 30, 35 minutes, you know, in terms of GI bleed. Mike asked me in terms of updating basically with the, this lecture series to make sure we hit core content in ter terms of boards. So I'm going to expect that much of this is going to be kind of review for you and then a few new pearls, a few new pieces of literature thrown in there. What I want to do is actually not focus and try and cover all of GI bleeding. I want to just focus on upper GI bleeding, so the category that has the highest mortality. And when we talk about your patients in the ICU, these tend to be the sicker ones with massive upper GI bleed. So just making sure we're all on the same page with that. And really start off, this is a case that came into the ED. This was probably about six or seven months ago. And as the medical director of the ED, I do have a, a great assistant director, but nevertheless, whenever we have issues, QA, risk management issues, they're always brought to our attention for review. So I, I want you to put yourselves in our shoes. This was a case, like I said, presented about six or seven months ago. This was a Saturday afternoon. Everyone had left the hospital for the day. Baltimore City Paramedic brought us a 44-year-old gentleman with basically a chief complaint of hematemesis. And the reason they radioed in is because they want us, wanted to let us know, first off, he was coming, that he wasn't stable. So his blood pressures were 80s over 40s per the medic. A little tachycardic, so 105, a little tachypnic, and somewhat hypoxic on room air. So his past medical history, or his HPI, he's a gentleman who had become depressed over the preceding uh, six to eight weeks. He'd resumed heavy alcohol intake and, as a result, started developing some mid-epigastric abdominal pain. One day prior to his presentation, he had noticed some dark, tarry stools, and he'd had this before, so he started to get worried, but that didn't stop him from drinking that night. On the morning of, he had an episode of hematemesis, so not too much, still concerning, but then as he was in the shower, he began feeling very lightheaded, very near syncopal, and so he called EMS. His history was cirrhosis, so he's a cirrhotic patient, secondary to both alcohol as well as hepatitis C, and he'd already had been admitted to our institution and one other for previous episodes of upper GI bleeding, and he had known esophageal varices. When he got to the ED that Saturday afternoon, you can see still hypotensive, a little bit more tachycardic, remaining mildly tachypnic, and sat in a little bit better on a non-rebreather. On exam, he looked terrible, so he was pale, diaphoretic, certainly just overall looked like a sickly individual. So cachectic looked like what we would expect for a patient perhaps with end-stage liver disease, a cirrhotic patient who's not eating and only ingesting alcohol on a regular basis. He had some residual blood around his teeth, gum lines, so clearly he was having some hematemesis. 
flat, neck veins were flat, lungs were clear, was tachycardic. His belly was a little bit protuberant, so he's probably got some ascites in there. And just mild to moderate, just overall diffuse tenderness, a little bit worse in the epigastric region, and then some bilateral symmetric, let's say mild to moderate pitting edema. So within the first 10 or 15 minutes, he got put into room eight in our ED, kept on non-rebreather. The nurses were able to establish a 20-gauge IV, so normal saline resuscitation was started. An EKG wasn't showing any signs of acute ischemia, so just some simply sinus tachycardia. Labs were sent off, and within five minutes, he proceeded to cover the floor in massive hematemesis, dripping off the stretcher, dripping off. He just voluminous, bright red blood. So then he becomes minimally responsive, and the non-invasive cuff pressure measurement now is 50s over 30s. So at that point, what are you going to do? We faced Saturday afternoon. Consultants were gone. This guy has just filled room eight. We're walking around in blood, and essentially, he's unstable now. So that's what we're going to do over the next like 20, 25 minutes in terms of massive upper GI bleeding. The reason it's, port- it's important, as I alluded to, is this what carries the highest mortality. So when we talk about massive bleeding, anybody with hematemesis and signs and or symptoms of hemodynamics instability, not necessarily quantifying the hematemesis, but anybody with instability has massive upper GI bleed. Mortality is up to about 40%, and as you would expect, it's highest with variceal bleeding. And it accounts for about 75% of massive GI bleeding overall. So this is the patient population that tends to be very sick, stuff that you have already experienced and have cared for over the course of this past year. From a board standpoint, what's the most common etiology of upper GI bleed? So varices actually are fairly uncommon. They're only about 12% of upper GI bleeds. But across the board, what's the most common cause location? Right, which location, which one? DU or GU? Exactly. So they're close. Duodenal ulcers account for about 28%. Gastric ulcers about 26 And you can see esophageal varices, although it has the highest mortality, only about 1 in 10 causes of massive upper GI bleed. So the first thing, we're going to go in, we're going to resuscitate this patient, we're going to talk about pharmacologic therapy and rescue therapy with mechanical devices. But it's important to mobilize consultants early because on a Saturday afternoon, it takes them time to drive in. So what three consultants do you want to have somebody, your resident, students, somebody, page, to get them mobilized? GI for emergent EGD. IR, in case they need to go and exactly. So general surgery. You gotta get these patients, you gotta get these consultants called early because it's gonna take some time, especially if you need to mobilize the IR suite. That's gonna take a lot of time to call these extra resources in. In general, most patients don't go to the OR. It's still worth calling ACES and Jose Diaz always wants a call for massive GI bleed, regardless of whether it's upper or lower, but in general, infrequently these patients get sent off to the OR. It's either EGD in the ICU or off to IR. So with respect to his initial resuscitation, he's minimally responsive, hypotensive. What do you want to start off with? So 
You're at the bedside stepping through puddles of blood now. What are you going to do first? So pack red cells we're going to talk about. It's going to take a little bit of time to, if you're in trauma, you can run to the TRU. You've got blood. In the ED, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to get a tech to the blood bank. So certainly we're thinking about transfusion. What's the first thing you would consider doing in him? Exactly. So intubate. How would you intubate him? What meds would you use? Might not need any sedatives or paralytics. He's becoming minimally responsive. Could get away with a sedative. If you're thinking about Atomidate, it's probably reasonable. Maybe ketamine, since he's even though he's a little tachycardic, that's going to rev up the tachycardia a little bit more. Plus minus the paralytic, depending on how well the sedative. But certainly securing his airway first is a must, especially in this patient. And because of the interventions, if you've got someone with massive GI bleed and you take a look at the ACP guidelines, critical care guidelines, they're all going to urge early intubation, especially if they're going to need an EGD in the setting of massive upper GI bleed. So already be thinking, mobilizing your resources for intubating early. What would you like your resident to do for access? Exactly. So introduce her size catheter for large resuscitation, starting off with saline. So all, all recommendations, guidelines, certainly crystalloids if you want to start off while you're getting your blood, and we'll talk about blood in a few minutes. What about blood pressure monitoring? Reasonable to put in an A-line for con continuous blood pressure monitoring? Yep. I think so. So this guy's getting everything off the bat, securing the airway, intubating him, starting volume resuscitation after an introducer size catheter. And then obviously we're sending labs. We know that's going to take some time, but then getting someone either to the blood bank or getting the O-negative blood. So what I want to talk about for the next few minutes is actually pharmacologic therapy. So we've gotten GI. We've gotten a call back. They're at home. They're going to come in and do an EGD in the ICU every now and then in the ED intubating him, securing his airway in anticipation of doing that. But pharmacologic therapy. So we're going to perhaps write for PPIs, somatostatin in international settings, octreotide or somatostatin analog here, perhaps vasopressin. If you're outside the U.S., maybe terlipressin, and then antibiotics. So with respect to PPIs, certainly everyone in this room knows the mechanism, and in essence, we are giving it to in promote clot formation and inhibit clot lysis by decreasing the gastric pH, right? So when you take a look at the guidelines, they're fairly clear. Is once we've scoped somebody and they have ulcerative disease, post-endoscopy PPIs work pretty well at decreasing rebleeding, decreasing the need for surgery. But when we're resuscitating somebody, we're thinking about pre-endoscopy. Is that the trauma pager? <laughs> Everybody's simultaneous. So here's the controversy. In terms of administering a PPI in someone with massive upper GI bleed pre-endoscopy, we think that it facilitates the EGD. We think that it improves what we see at the time of EGD, thereby decreasing the times we need to intervene when GI goes in there. We think it decreases rebleeding, maybe the need for surgery, and it's hypothesized to decrease mortality 
in the undifferentiated patient. And in fact, it's contained in guidelines. So when you take a look at the most recent guidelines from ACP from an internal medicine standpoint, 2010, they will in- indicate or recommend considering pre-endoscopic PPIs. This is one that Mike sent me. This is kind of a, the, the most recent international. This is more of a French consensus guideline, but also considering pre-endoscopic PPI administration in this, in this particular patient. But does the evidence support it? So this is, a, I believe, a 2010 Cochrane Review, most recent on this, taking a look also updated in 2012. Systematic review, six randomized trials, over 2,200 patients taking a look at our PPIs pre-endoscopy. So while we're in the midst of resuscitating this person before we look with an EGD, are they beneficial? The bottom line is, yes, they reduced stigmata of hemorrhage, along with the need for therapy when GI goes in. But these actually don't reduce re-bleeding rates, don't reduce the need for surgery. And importantly, there is no mortality benefit from the administration of PPIs pre-endoscopically. So from an informational standpoint, the evidence doesn't support pre-endoscopic PPIs. So if, if we give them... I think that's fine, but understand there's no mortality benefit or decreased episodes of re-bleeding. Now, having said that, fairly low risk-benefit profile, right? Fairly low adverse events with this. So, giving that, if you opt to give it, let's just say post-endoscopy, endoscopy. How would you, what would you write for? Exactly. So, there's a continuous infusion. This Straightforward, 80 milligram bolus of pantoprazole followed by 8 milligrams per hour. And if you're in print setting, depending on the formularity, you'll see this also, lansoprazole in recommendations, but 80 followed by 8 per hour. Fairly straightforward. Now, what about somatostatin or somatostatin analogs? So this would be octreotide, right? We think the mechanism is that certainly with the suppression of the release of hormones, so motilin, gastrin, cholecystokinin, secretin, that it overall decreases splanchnic blood flow, thereby decreasing portal venous blood flow, thereby decreasing the pressure load and ultimately decreasing the GI bleed in patients who have portal hypertension or perhaps variceal bleeding. So this is in the variceal bleeder considered, once again, recommended in international consensus guidelines that vasoactive therapy, whether it's somatostatin or octreotide, be given as soon as possible in patients who are either suspected or known to have portal hypertension, upper GI bleed. But once again, does the evidence support its use? Another Cochrane review on this particular topic, 21 studies, over 2,500 patients to say does somatostatin or octreotide actually improve survival in patients, in cirrhotic patients with upper, massive upper GI bleed? It does decrease the need for blood by about 0.5 to 0.7 units. So I don't think our blood bank here partitions it out per half unit, but in essence, a little bit less than a unit of blood saved. Not much when you're going to necessarily transfuse this massive GI bleeder. Somatostatin and octreotide also decrease the number of patients who, if, when you go in for endoscopic therapy, whether it's banding or whether you're in a center that does sclerotherapy, 
does decrease that patients who fail that initial therapy. However, just like PPIs, these medications have not been shown to decrease rebleeding or actually improve mortality in cirrhotics with upper GI bleed. Now, once again, just like PPIs, even though there's no mortality benefit, the risk or adverse event is fairly low. What's the most common side effect of octreotide? Jason. Glucose. In general, just hyperglycemia. So it's fairly low adverse events. So when we give it, we know in terms of octreotide, 50 mic bolus, right? 50 mics per hour until we can get in there and control it. But understand, PPIs and octreotide, there is no mortality benefit to these patients given pre-endoscopically. Now, what about vasopressin? So as a rescue therapy, once again, continue recommended in international guidelines, just like somatostatin or octreotide in an international setting, give these as soon as possible as soon as you suspect portal hypertension and continue them for a few days. Now, there's also, in the U.S. guidelines, if someone's crashing their in extremis like this patient, to consider the use of vasopressin. So what is vasopressin going to do? In this setting, what will it do? Right, via vasoconstriction. So it's going to be both. It's a vasoconstrictor, as you all know, so there's splanchnic and overall vasoconstriction systemically. So what are the adverse effects of intense vasoconstriction with this, this medicine? Right. So from a splanchnic standpoint, mesenteric ischemia. And then from a systemic standpoint, obviously some type of cardiac issue. So you've given this medicine, I'm sure, multiple times in various settings, perhaps sepsis as a secondary vasopressor. The doses in the GI bleeder are different from a standard dose, say, with a second vasopressor in the setting of sepsis. So this is you're going to start off around 0.2 to 0.4 and going to titrate up to either cessation of bleeding or amino arterial pressure goal of about 65. Now, the MAP goal that you'll see in international and, and U.S. guidelines of 65 is once again extrapolating from other disease states, primarily sepsis, but that would be the goal. Now, in a non-U.S. setting, terlipressin's probably the, of the two, this is the one that actually has a little bit of mortality data behind it, saying it's a little bit beneficial. So our international colleagues will use this a little bit more frequently in the setting of massive upper GI bleed. But since it's not available, no need to review the dose. But consider vasopressin in patients in extremis, this patient who is dying and you're having problems sustaining an adequate mean arterial perfusion pressure while once again mobilizing consultants to come in. There are recommendations. Has anyone ever done this? Has anyone actually ever given vasopressin in the setting of massive GI bleed? And have you combined nitroglycerin with that? So a little hard to do a vasoconstrictor along with a vaso or venodilator, right? So there are recommendations to say you can consider the use of nitroglycerin as an in combination with vasopressin if somebody's getting in trouble from the systemic or splanchnic vasoconstrictive effects. We want the splanchnic vasoconstriction, but if they're developing problems from a systemic standpoint, you can use nitroglycerin to help decrease the systemic side effects of using this medication. 
So both U.S. and international guidelines say consider the use of nitroglycerin once again in infusion, starting off at about 0.3 mics per kg per minute and then titrating up every few minutes, probably not in excess of 10 mics per kg per minute. So something to consider if you're using it and then get into trouble. All right, antibiotics. When would you want to give them? When would you want to consider them? In what setting? <coughs> Variceal bleed. So PPIs, no mortality benefit. Somatostatin or octreotide, no mortality benefit. Antibiotics, mortality benefit or not? Right. So that's, this is, of the three medications, plus minus vasopressin, this is the medication or pharmacologic therapy that actually does have mortality benefit for cirrhotics or variceal bleeding because almost half of them develop some type of bacterial infection. That could be anywhere. It could be bacteremia from translocation. It could be pneumonia. It could be UTI. These patients, because of overall profound immunosuppression, are at market increased risk of developing some type of bacterial infection. And this, when they develop an infection, absolutely is associated with increased episodes of rebleeding as well as increased mortality. So once again, a Cochrane review. This is over 1,200 patients do antibiotics work in the setting of patients who have upper GI bleed with cirrhosis or variceal bleeding. Bottom line is yes, decreases rebleeding, decreases the incidence of infections, as well as improves mortality. So what antibiotics, what two classes do we want to give? Right, so a third-generation cephalosporin or the other class of medicines that is contained in recommendations? What that? Not macrolide. Yep, so Jason got it. For either a third-generation cephalosporin, so here we'd give a gram of ceftriaxone, or a fluoroquinolone. So either one, Cipro, some use norfloxacin, depending on your formulary. But of the three pharmacologic therapies that we always give, it's antibiotics in the setting of cirrhotics or variceal bleed that actually is the only one that has mortality benefit and decreased rebleeding risk. All right, now pack red cells. Why are we giving blood in this patient? Volume resuscitate. Right? So restore intravascular volume, but also restoring O2 carrying capacity, right? So providing red cells, increasing O2 carrying capacity, increasing O2 tissue delivery. Most recent recommendations are to maintain a hemoglobin between 7 to 8. So we're thinking about transfusing these patients really early, transfusing them a lot. But what's our target? So current recommendation, 7 to 8. I did want to mention this particular study. This just got published in January 2013 in New England Journal. Are you familiar with this? Have you reviewed this study? In essence, single-center randomized controlled trial, this is from Barcelona, to take a look at either a restricted versus liberal hemoglobin threshold in patients with upper GI bleeding. So adult patients now... They could either have melana, hematemesis, or a bloody NG tube aspirate. So this seemed to be all comers. But when they parceled it out by those who had cirrhosis and who didn't, the restrictive threshold was 7 grams per deciliter. So when it got below, they transfused to between 7 and 9. 
the liberal was 9. So you're very familiar with these thresholds in, in other anemia, ICU, RBC transfusion studies. All of them got EGD within six hours. So if they had bleeding peptic ulcer disease, that was taken care of. If they had varices, they were banded or had sclerotherapy. If there were other causes, they were treated. So if there was, they also got um, somatostatin as well as antibiotics for portal hypertension, usual care of what we just talked about. <coughs> Taking a look at what was the impact on 45-day all-cause mortality, over 900 patients, but when you excluded a few that dropped out. So essentially equal between restrictive and liberal. Most, once again, had peptic ulcer disease, or more common etiology. There was a mortality benefit. So you'll hear the 45% relative improvement, but a 4% absolute mortality improvement. Better for the restrictive group, so maintaining a lower hemoglobin threshold of 7 in these patients with acute upper GI bleed. Also, the restricted group had lower rates of re-bleeding, shorter hospital length of stay, and less requirement of either balloon tamponade or emergent TIPS procedure. Now, importantly, this was single center, and it didn't include the patient that presented at the beginning, so on a Saturday afternoon who had massive upper GI bleed. Those were excluded. So I think with respect to PRBCs, even though there's now evidence to say in the upper GI bleed, still maintaining that lower hemoglobin threshold of 7, obviously we're individualizing transfusions per that individual patient. Do they have cardiac disease? What's your threshold for cardiac disease? Still use 7? Yeah, 7 to 8. Some guidelines will say 8. Certainly not 10. We know that for sure that if you even... Even in patients who have cardiac disease or a history of cardiac disease, no need to drive them higher. Now, all the caveats in terms of guidelines will say, with the exception of active ischemia. So if you've got EKG abnormalities, positive troponin, patients who are symptomatic from a cardiac standpoint, it's probably better to have them with a little bit higher hemoglobin. But just simply because of the fact they've got coronary artery disease as a history doesn't mean that they need a higher hemoglobin threshold. Would you use, interestingly, raise hands, who would use massive transfusion in this patient? Would you activate a massive transfusion protocol? And I think that's the way to go for, for this guy who's exsanguinating in room eight. He's covered the floor with blood. He's minimally responsive. He's got no mental status, and his pressure at best is 50s over 30s. So I, I think this is the right thing in terms of activating that. Have you all, I'm, I'm assuming that you've all used massive transfusion over the course of this year. Okay. And are you using one-to-one-to-one? One? How about calcium? Giving calcium with a determined unit? Okay. When it's available. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's just take a, a quick break. Jason's seen these before. Uh, I grew up in Maryland. I was... Grew up a little bit in the city, and then my parents moved me way west. It's a place called Mount Airy in western Howard County, Carroll County. Has anybody ever heard of Mount Airy? A few head nods, a few not. It's very rural, very rural. I, I grew up um, not on a farm, but surrounded by farms. And often when I would play other high schools for sports, I played baseball. We would all... They, my classmates, my teammates, we'd always get teased. Oh, did you guys drive your tractor to 
to the games, you know, very rural Calc type of setting. And, and Mount Airy, is, as a few head nods, is becoming a little bit more popular. I, uh, I like to think it's because we finally got a Starbucks and a Chipotle. Uh, Mike and, and Jason know. It, I'm not simply because I only drink Starbucks, but because it's a drive through right before I get on 70 to come in. So it makes it a little bit more convenient so I can get dinner and coffee for an evening or overnight shift in the ED. But unfortunately, I'm, I think I'm learning that the reason Mount Airy is becoming more well-known is um, we got a Walmart in town. And much like many of us were teased about driving tractors to, to school and baseball games, some of us still get around town, you know, using that primary vehicle. Um, Mount Airy is a great place, but we're a little slow. We have heard of the Internet, and you, you know that... There are a lot of these sort of internet dating, Baltimore.com, EllicottCity.com, or Ellicott City Singles. We haven't used that. We've gone to more innovative methods for <laughs> advertising um, online dating. Apparently, we're having difficulty spelling during the holiday times. Um, much like many of you have already experienced in Baltimore, it does get pretty hot in August, 100 degrees, and... and some of us a little bit more innovative in terms of using the heat to, to bake some cookies while in the Walmart. You just have to make sure that you don't bring your pets along. And then you know that you've just kind of given up on life when you're walking around in Walmart <laughs> with, um, with the Foley bag. All right. So let's get back so we can kind of finish up and, and get you back to clinical shifts or home for the day. The other big thing, so we've talked about pharmacologic therapy, you know, PPIs, octreotide, antibiotics, transfusing, but certainly reversing coagulopathy is incredibly important in the initial resuscitation. Now, this patient wasn't on any anticoagulants or any platelet therapy, but certainly if patients come in on these medicines and they're like this guy, we need to reverse them. So are any of you actually using some of the platelet function assays? you know, to assess either aspirin or clopidogrel activity? Have you ordered them? You know, so do you find them useful? Now, we do have here, I don't know if you all know, but we do have in our lab Verify Now, which is able to assess either aspirin or clopidogrel activity. You would order it, you know, in talking with the lab, P2Y12 receptor blockade. In essence, now it does need to, it goes in a special tube, and for us, we have to walk some of our samples up. This is one that you don't really want to agitate the tube too much. This has to be hand-carried, so we actually have to hand-carry it from the ED, not send it via the tube system because it will affect the results. And in general, in general, you know, I always meet with the lab about turnaround times, and they always seem to be much more stellar than I actually have clinical experience with, but they'll report that the turnaround time for this is about 15 minutes. So you can use platelet function assays to determine the... the degree of activity for aspirin and, once again, clopidogrel. But let's just say this guy's on aspirin. How would, what do you do to reverse him? Platelets, right? So either an apheresis unit or a six-pack of random donors, right? And if massive, if massive bleeding, when you look at antiplatelet reversal guidelines, U.S. and international, in this guy, they'd also consider using DDAVP. Now, the evidence for DDAVP is very poor at best, but nevertheless, it's still recommended in even the aspirin setting at 0.3 mics per kilo. 
So do you know the side effects of repeated doses of DDABP? You know the two things that you want to think about? So hypernatremia is one, and then actually repeated dosing can precipitate seizures. I'm not sure the pathophysiology of that, but two side effects if you need to repeatedly dose DDABP. But either a single unit, aphoresis unit, or six-pack of pooled donors. What about clopidogrel? Patient comes in on Plavix, and he's exsanguinating. Here's some whispers. So we don't really know because there's no antidote, but most will recommend actually two units, two aphoresis units, or anywhere from 10 to 12 packs of random pool donors. Also considering DDABP, once again, without very much literature at all to support its use, but these are the guidelines. Now, what about warfarin? So just what is your cocktail for warfarin reversal? Yeah, vitamin K, FFP, 5 to 10 milligrams of vitamin K, 10 to 15 FFP, so say 4 to 6 units. But what has recently developed in this past week? Yeah, so PCCs have now been approved. I think it's called Concentra. Is that it? K-Centra. So that should be coming down the line in terms of rapid reversal. I think we've all talked about it and you've heard it in multiple lectures in terms of PCC. So I think that we're going to anxiously await that and, and implement their use because obviously you know that it simply reconstituted standard dose, virtually no volume, and rapid reversal. Now, I think the concentric one, the data showed that it had um, 62% reversal compared to 9% in terms of plasma in the studies that the FDA is citing in terms of its approval. So nevertheless, coming on the horizon, anyone using Factor Seven? I, I know we kind of use it fairly frequently, or a little bit more liberally than the literature would support. Uh, but importantly, it isn't FDA approved, you know, but nevertheless, it will rapidly reverse INR. Just no literature behind it. And, and you all probably experienced the increased arterial and venous thromboembolic complications from it. All right, endoscopy. Just a few things with respect to endoscopy. How many of you have called GI? And they say, okay, we're coming in. Can you go ahead and insert the NG tube? And t- or tell me what the NG tube aspirate shows to see whether I'm coming in. Has anyone experienced that? I think we get it weekly, especially from the emergency department setting. You know, got to put in the NG tube. And it is contained in recommendations. So this was the international guidelines that I said a little bit earlier to say, well, it could help in the diagnostic approach. And even if they have varices, it's still okay to insert an NG tube. But my question to you would be, does it need to be put in at all? This is literature from our own shop. So this is 2004. Mike Whitting, one of the ED attendings, and Amal Matu, who you're familiar with, took a look at his NG aspirate useful. Now, importantly, these initial studies were in patients without hematemesis. So they came in predominantly lower GI bleed. They looked pretty bad. They needed a scope, potentially. But GI says, put in the NG tube to let me know whether I need to go an EGD or do a colonoscopy. And you can see here in the studies that we reviewed or the patients that we reviewed for this particular study, the overall sensitivity of that NG lavage or NG aspirate was very, very poor 
and a terrible negative likelihood ratio. So it wasn't helpful whatsoever in determining either the etiology or the source, let alone directing whether that patient needed an EGD. This is a little bit more recent study, nasogastric aspiration and lavage in ED patients, once again, without hematemesis, and once again, showing a terrible negative predictive value. So in patients without, with hematemesis, it seems reasonable, okay, that's an upper source, we're going to have to go in. If they simply have lower GI bleeding, an NG lavage or NG aspirate is terrible at identifying if someone's got an upper source. So we still should be starting off with an EGD. But the other common question, scenario that GI will state is go ahead and place the NG tube because it's going to make my EGD better, right? I'll be able to visualize what's going on. If you can go ahead and drop the NG and put it to continuous suction, I can see the lesion. Turns out that that's probably not so much the case. So this is a study that just got published, uh, I think, six or seven months ago in, in a GI endoscopy journal, taking a look at either erythromycin or gastric lavage for upper GI bleed. And the whole intent was, how good was visualization at the time of emergent EGD? So overall, six EDs participated. Patients were separated either into IV erythromycin alone, NG alone, or the combination of both. Turns out that IV erythromycin plus minus the NG tube actually works better than NG tube alone. So the arg- you, can ha- you actually have a strong argument, literature supported, that if GI is requesting an NG tube simply for improved visualization, it's better with IV erythromycin than dropping an NG tube. There's also been other promotility agents, say metoclopramide, have been studied. Turns out erythromycin is still a little bit better probably than Reglan in terms of improved visualization. But this is simply a 250 milligram IV dose given prior to endoscopy. So if you suspect or GI is driving in, you can consider doing 250 of IV erythromycin more so than dropping the NG tube. We've, we all know it's ex- exceedingly painful. One of the most painful procedures rated by patients who have had a whole slew of things done. NG2 turns out to be one of the worst. Turns out IV erythromycin is probably better than the NG2. And then scoring systems, we won't belabor this too much, but in terms of predicting mortality, predicting in-hospital mortality, rebleeding, this is very pertinent to all of you. Once the patient has gotten up to the ICU, what's the potential mortality? I think many of you, there's a pre- and post-endoscopy rock hall as well as the Glasgow Blatchford. And then this is the newest one, newest kid on the block in terms of scoring systems is the AIMS 65. So it's easy to look these up, you know, in terms of scoring systems. It's probably worth that knowing that there's scoring systems out there, but not necessarily the individual components because they're all on MedCalc. So Rock Hall looks at the risk of rebleeding. Glasgow Blatchford takes a look at also bleeding as well as intervention and mortality. And then with respect to the newest one, AIM-65, it's fairly simple to remember taking a look at inpatient mortality. So what's the likelihood this patient may die during this particular admission? And you just remember the acronym, albumin, INR, altered mental status, systolic blood pressure, and then age over 65. And once again, this is in MedCalc, so it's easy simply to plug in these numbers and predict, have a reasonable prediction of inpatient mortality to have the for care as well as family communication. And this is a, 
forget which journal this is from, but this is something that just came out about, I think, eight or nine months ago, taking a look at AIM-65 versus the Glasgow Blatchford. Turns out that at mortality, probably this easy AIM-65 does a little bit better in predicting inpatient mortality. Something simple to remember. I don't know if this is going to work. Let's see. All right, so this guy is exsanguinating. And we cannot get control of him with the medications. So not something that you want to see at the time of endoscopy. This patient, we went ahead, despite the mortality, lack of mortality benefit for PPIs, octreotide, he has received both of those. He's been given ceftriaxone, volume resuscitated, has an introducer, is intubated, but continuing to say be hemodynamically unstable. He's bleeding, continues to... Now, we opted to go ahead and put an NG tube and it's just copious coming out of the NG tube. What's left as rescue? Yeah, so balloon, balloon tamponade, right? How many of you know which device we have here? So a handful. Do you know where to get it? Ask nicely. So we have a few that we review with our residents downstairs. We have a, a sample or two. But in terms of balloon tamponade devices, Mike wanted to meet me to review definitely the indications. So when are you going to put them in? Well, in essence, if there's so much bleeding, you can't perform an EGD. If the consultant can't get in or is unavailable, you're out somewhere and meds alone, so octreotide isn't decreasing the portal pressure enough and there's still massive bleeding, or they're in on this particular case and they can't control bleeding. So there are three predominant balloon devices available. And it's important to know which one we have because each one has different balloons as well as different aspiration ports. So the Linton only has a gastric balloon, has a gastric and esophageal aspiration port. The Blakemore, which we have here, has a gastric esophageal balloons, but it only has a gastric aspiration port. It does not have an esophageal aspiration. And then the Minnesota has both <coughs> in terms of ports. So in terms of placing this, hard to see, but Barry, I hate to put you on the spot. How would you tell, can you walk me through how you would place one of these devices? Patient's intubated, so we're not worried about the airway. Yep. At least 50, so that's good. And uh, then you uh, inflate your, your distal port first and your proximal port. Mm-hmm. So good. I think that important, some important pearls on placing these, since we have the Blakemore that does not have an esophageal aspiration port 
And if you have time, consider a makeshift esophageal aspiration port with suction here. So essentially, you're, you're placing an NG tube with some sutures at least three centimeters proximal to the balloon. And just as Barry said, you're going to test the inflation of the balloons prior to putting it in. You do want to have some lubrication. Coat both tubes or balloons with lubrication. You're going to place it probably all the way to the hub, at least 50 centimeters. But if you go to the hub, you'll be fine. You're going to ins inflate the gastric port with 50 cc's and then check a chest x-ray. So you want to ensure that the gastric balloon is certainly subdiaphragmatic. Once you've ensured that, you're going to inflate it with a few hundred more cc's. These take a large volume. And then you're going to, have, you're going to pull traction on that until you feel it catch against the gastric fundus, right? And then connect your gastric aspiration port. See if blood stops. Now, if blood does not stop, or you actually have both, so you're your NG tube, or you have a Minnesota, and you connect both gastric and esophageal, and blood is continuing, then you're going to need to inflate the esophageal port. With respect to tension, here's a nice pearl or a nice trick. Instead of have tying it to the catcher's mask for tension, a one-liter bag of saline is about the right weight to provide tension to avoid necrosis. So all you simply have to do is take a Curlex here and hang a liter bag, and you're good to go with the right amount of tension. With respect to inflating the esophageal port here, now this is in, I did the chapter for uh, Robertson Hedges on this one. So it, it's all outlined here and online. But in essence, you don't want to inflate the esophageal balloon higher than 45 millimeters of mercury because you certainly risk esophageal rupture. So gastric balloon goes up, you check both ports, still bleeding, then inflate the esophageal balloon, check both. Still bleeding, put a little bit more tension, inflate just a little bit more, but not to exceed 45. And then we usually keep these in place for how long? Depending on the patient. But yeah, exactly, so about a day, about 24 hours until we slowly deflate the esophageal balloon to see if there's any type of re-bleeding. And then finally, the last rescue device is TIPS. So emergent TIPS. Who do we send it off? Does it work? In essence, up to about 20% of variceal bleeders aren't going to respond to all of the therapies that we just talked about. In general, TIPS is fairly safe, at least for patients who have child, or actually all class, all child pew classes in terms of liver disease. But patients who have a significant score, obviously, very high mortality. No surprise there. This is, pretty, this is fairly easy. So once again, MedCalc, if you're unsure or can't remember how to calculate the child's class, it's just plug, 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 just like you know, clicking off PERC score for PE. Very easily online. But what we should emphasize in, in these cirrhotic or, say, variceal bleeders, TIPS procedure we should still consider early. So within the first 72 hours, are li it's listed in the guidelines, but if you, you really want to consider them in the first 24 hours to have the greatest impact upon patient morbidity and mortality, and who you want to consider it in is those that have a high risk of re-bleeding. So it's either a child class B who's actively bleeding or a patient who has child class C. 
So not the, the truly high mortality ones that have got 13, 14, 15 on their child score. But see, that's kind of in that 10 to 14 range. So consider tips early and try to get it in within the first 24 hours. All right, so I think I'm at the end of my time. So it absolutely has been a pleasure and a privilege to chat with you during lunchtime. I'm going to head back to my ED shift, and hopefully I had my chairman cover, so hopefully the ED is not a disaster <laughs> when I go back downstairs. I, I heard the box going off with an 89-year-old with altered mental status, so I don't know what I'm going to walk back to. But let me just go over the quick things that, that Mike wanted me to touch on. Certainly, you've got this guy who comes in Saturday afternoon, looks terrible, and is dying. We're going in, we're going to do the resuscitation, but don't forget to have somebody get the consultants on board, whether that's ACES, that makes it easy here between, <laughs> between yawns. I know I have a flat, monotone voice, but it's <laughs> nevertheless, um, IR. Don't forget about IR, and obviously GI is going to come in. In terms of intubating these massive GI patients, massive GI bleeders, please, please do it early. You know this in terms of large bore introducer catheters, A-lines. These patients get all of this therapy up front. Pharmacologic therapy... The downside is very little, with the exception of vasopressin, but just understand that there really actually is not mortality benefit to PPIs preendoscopically, <coughs> mortality benefit to somatostatin or octreotide. The only medicine that does have mortality benefit is antibiotics, third-generation cephalosporin or fluoroquinolone in the setting of variceal bleed. Vasopressin to consider plus-minus nitroglycerin, once again, in the patient who is trying to die or in extremis, from GI bleed. In terms of the PAC red cells, reasonable to, to initiate massive transfusion in this particular type of patient. In the absence of massive hematemesis or hemodynamic instability, your hemoglobin threshold, as per the latest New England Journal article, is about seven. And then in terms of reversing coagulopathy, we talked about aspirin, clopidogrel. We didn't touch on the bigotran. Uh, per se, but in terms of warfarin, we now have a PC four-factor four PCC that's coming. If GI is going to insist upon the NG tube, there's no evidence to support that in terms of identifying the lesion as an upper, nor is there any evidence. Actually, the evidence is better in the setting of erythromycin to actually clear out the stomach to improve visualization at the time of EGD. And then in terms of balloon tamponade, just a few pearls, in terms of the, the weight using the saline bag and then the indications for both that as well as tips. So with that, I'm going to wrap up. I finish with one minute to go. So I appreciate all of you coming. It's really, like I said, it's a, a pleasure for me to, to escape the ED amidst some altered mental status, back pain, and multiple complaints. <laughs> so thanks again. I can entertain any questions, but uh, have a great afternoon. <laughs>